Terra incognita speculative fiction. Terra incognita speculative fiction. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. This month's featured writer is Peter M. Ball, who's leading the next crop of up-and-coming Australian specfic writers. Peter's story on the destruction of Copenhagen by the war machines of the Merfolk was listed in the 2009 Locus magazine Recommended Reads and his SF short Clockwork, Patchwork and Ravens won the Aurealis Award for SF short story earlier this year. His story for TISF, Black Dog, is a dark fantasy that shows just how bad it is to be stalked by that particular mongrel. But for some people, it could be a lot worse. The first time the black dog showed up, I was five. We were living in Mirawinnie, and it lurked behind the low chain-link fence that marked out our backyard, hunkered down in the long grass, filling the space between the fence line and the train tracks. No one else could see it, not even my parents. It was good at hiding when other people looked. I don't remember much about our house back then. My parents were teachers, so we moved around a lot. And I was five, and that means I'm working with hazy images here. I remember that the house was on stilts, thick hardwood pylons that would keep the snakes out and keep us dry if the river flooded. I remember off-white weatherboards and corrugated iron roof. We lived across the road from an endless expanse of North Queensland cane fields. They burned blood red and spat ash into the air during the harvest months. The town was just a school, a pub, and a corner store that sold fizzy drinks and cordial. Maybe a couple of dozen people lived around the train station, the rest spread out in the houses that nestled in the heart of the cane fields. My friends were mostly farm kids, seen only on weekends. Mirawinnie was the kind of place where adults were filled with conventional worries. A bad harvest, the bills coming due, snake bites while cutting the cane and a cyclone sweeping in off the coast. No one worried about the black dog except me. At first my parents would check the long grass when I spoke of him, just to make sure nothing was hiding there, but it didn't take long for their concern to falter. I was a child prone to imaginary friends and childish fictions. There was no reason to believe my stories. It doesn't exist, they told each other. He'll grow out of it eventually. One day, when my mother was taking me seriously, she convinced me that I should be making friends with the black dog. I was six, and I was terrified, and I refused to play outside. It's time to conquer your fear, she said, handing me a fistful of sausages. They were slimy to hold, the meat squelching through my fingers. My mother held my other hand and dragged me down the back steps. Give them to the dog, she said. Just throw it over the fence and let him know that you want to be friends. The black dog didn't want to be friends. It was already sniffing out my scent as I trundled down the back steps. I saw the wolfish head rise out of the grass, fixing me with its crimson gaze. Nice doggy, I said, and I held up the sausages so it would know I was willing to try. The black dog just smiled and pressed its body against the chain-link fence. 
The silky midnight of its muzzle pressed through the links, the moist tips sniffing as I got closer. Mum was looking in the other directions, her eyes on the dark clouds that squatted on the horizon. Clouds were worrying things during storm season. Little boy, the black dog whispered, his voice just low enough that Mum couldn't hear. Yum. I dropped the sausages and squirmed out of my mother's hands, taking the stairs two at a time as she yelled out my name and demanded I come back. I refused to leave the house, watching her search for the dropped sausages through the wire of the screen door. Later that night she told my father what happened, whispered the story in hushed tones after I went to bed, when they thought I couldn't hear. She couldn't work out how the sausages had disappeared. When I was seven, my parents were transferred, so we moved south to the Gold Coast. I was happy to move. We settled into the suburbs, and the only thing behind the fence in our backyard was another backyard and the neighbor's swimming pool. We envied that pool during the sweltering summer months, but most of the time I was just happy to have something good to watch on television. Having multiple channels seemed like a smorgasbord after Mirawinnie's patchy reception. I liked our new house. I had friends who lived in the same neighbourhood. They could come around and play after school. There were enough people around to play frisbee or cricket in the backyard, as long as no one threw too hard or hit the ball high enough that it would go over the fence. We had a big fence. An old wooden thing with grey slats and pointed tips that was so tall that even my mother couldn't peer over the top. My mother was the tallest person in my family, at least three inches taller than my father. It was her job to look over the tall fences, his job to repair the tall fences when anything went wrong. My new bedroom was small, but so was I back then. It came with pictures of Donald Duck drawn into the walls and a built-in reading lamp that meant I could read in bed. I liked reading. My bookshelves were filled with fairy tales and the work of Enid Blyton. Reading was like having imaginary friends who did things on their own. It meant I didn't have to go to sleep. I'll tell you something true about the black dog. It can breathe fire. It could roast you in seconds, scouring you down to bare bones and ash. You can run away, but it will always come and find you. The black dog is persistent. It can smell your dreams in the warm night air as soon as you fall asleep, no matter how far you run. If the black dog wants to find you, there is nothing you can do to stop it. When I was nine, the black dog found me again. I hadn't seen it for two years. First, it slunk into my dreams and breathed its fiery breath. My skin crisped and flaked, the muscles and tendons melting away. I became a skeleton, blackened and crumbling, ready to be munched and crunched in the black dog's great jaws. I woke up screaming. My mother was sitting by the bed, wearing her pyjamas. Shh, she said, cool hands on my forehead. It's just a nightmare. It can't hurt you. She told me the same thing, night after night, her face growing tight and disappointed. The black dog kept coming. I learned not to scream in my sleep. People came to the Gold Coast because it had beaches and sun. The black dog hated the sun. I don't think it was too fond of the sand either. That meant it came to the Gold Coast because it was following me. It took up residence behind the fence again, hidden in the shadows of our neighbour's garden. I liked the high fence. It stopped the black dog from seeing me play in the backyard. If I was feeling brave, I could climb up and snatch a quick peek, trying to spot it among the delicate fingers of the neighbour's low ferns. I didn't feel brave all that often. If we lost a frisbee over the fence, I'd make one of my friends go and get it. Sometimes they wouldn't come back, and my parents would get concerned phone calls from their parents. 
Sometimes, late at night, I would hear the black dog swimming. He would splash about in the neighbor's pool, growling and baying at the moon. It didn't like sand, but I think it was starting to like the water. When I say the words black dog, I'm not speaking in metaphor. I don't use it as slang or to hide another meaning. There are legends that say you'll die if you see a black dog, unless you take the time to tell someone about it before the next dawn. I never said anything about the black dog to anyone, not at first, but I kept on living anyway. Legends tend to refer to black dogs as capitalised, black dog, something singular and dangerous rather than something generic. The black dog is not just any black dog. You aren't going to die just because your neighbours have a sooty Labrador in their backyard. The name black dog is specific. You'll know it if you see it. I lived on the Gold Coast for eight years. The black dog lived there with me. Sometimes it would disappear for months, I don't know why. There was never any obvious reason for its absence. It still crept into my dreams, lingering on the edges two or three times a week, breathing its fire breath and gnashing its jaws and reducing me to a screaming pile of black bones. And I didn't exactly miss the black dog when it went away. But I didn't sleep well, either. I would lie awake, reading in the dim glow of my nightlight, delaying the moment when I had to close my eyes. Sometimes, if I asked nicely, the black dog would even give me the night off. I guess it had other places to go, other people's dreams to lurk in. Even black dogs can be busy. Wait, I'll be honest. Not all of this is true. I'm lying in places. I've left out the dull bits and built on old memories. It happens in biographies. Some things are changed for the sake of convenience. For example, we moved to Mirawini when I was three, not five. We moved to the Gold Coast when I was six. I completely skipped the three years we lived elsewhere, hanging out in a country town with too many pubs and even more churches. We lived in more than one house on the Gold Coast. We moved across the suburbs like wandering stars for the first seven years that I lived there. And the black dog never gave me a break, not even when I asked for it. It sat there, night after night, a malignant blot on the landscape of my dreams. The black dog was a bastard. He had no consideration for narrative momentum or character arcs. The black dog ate my first girlfriend. Her name was Susanna, and we were both sixteen. We'd met when I was eight, and she taught me how to throw a frisbee. We were friends, originally, but there isn't much space for friendship when you're sixteen. Things evolve, whether you want them to or not. I was a much better friend than I was a boyfriend, even before my kissing her got Susanna eaten. I was a sloppy kisser back then, and I was so nervous about being her boyfriend that I never had much fun when we were together. She got eaten while we were hanging out on the balcony at her place. We were drinking instant coffee, trying to get used to the taste so we could go to cafes and drink lattes without seeming like children. We would boil the kettle, make a cup, and then try to keep a straight face while we drank it down. Now, coffee isn't particularly bitter if you add six teaspoons of sugar, but the sharp kick of the sugar rush was almost as bad as the Nescafe bitterness. We were on our third cup when Susanna noticed me watching the fence line. I was a connoisseur of fences by then. I'd been studying them for years, rating them by how well they could keep the black dog at bay. I liked the towering fence at Susanna's because it was made of orange bricks. By now I was afraid that the black dog would work out. It could simply burn down the wooden fence we had at home. What? Susanna said. Why are you looking at the fence? Nothing, I said. The balcony gave us a good angle. I could just make out the black dog's hackles rising over the bricks as it hit on the other side. It was a big dog now, bigger than I remembered. No, Susanna said. You always do it. It's weird. 
maybe I'm just paranoid. Susanna was into metal and had a love affair with Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. I'd learned to weave the names of her favourite songs into conversations, a private joke. Susanna picked at her black shirt, frown disappearing behind her ragged fringe as she looked down. Don't make jokes, she said. I thought you'd loved me. I thought I loved her too. She looked so hurt that I told her the truth. There's this dog that follows me. A big black one. It hides behind fences and wants to burn me with its breath. Susanna didn't say anything. Then she said, My neighbours don't have a dog. It's invisible, I said. I'm the only person who can see it. It's been hanging around since I was six, and it creeps into my dreams and breathes fire. That's stupid, Susanna said. There's no such thing as invisible dogs that breathe fire. Well, I can see one. Susanna laughed. I liked it when she laughed. It made her breasts jiggle. At sixteen I was acutely aware that breasts were very important things, and I liked the way Susanna's moved. She smiled at me, her teeth showing. I get it, she said, even though she didn't. You're having me on. Sure, I said, if you like. Then she leaned over and kissed me, her tongue worming its way past my gums and into my mouth. I closed my eyes. It was the first time she'd ever kissed me with tongue. She tasted like too much sugar in Nescafe, sweet and bitter all at once. I could feel her lips working against mine, trying to stay locked in the vacuum of the moment. She stopped and leaned back on her chair. I was still leaning forward, my eyes closed, trying not to drool in the aftermath. There, she said. Then I opened my eyes and the black dog was behind her, a massive blot of black fur and open mouth. It breathed in and out with harsh regularity, washing Susanna in a blast of sulphurous breath. I hadn't been this close to the black dog in real life, only in my dreams. I gritted my teeth and waited for the fire to come. Susanna didn't seem to notice. Not even when the black gums and gleaming white teeth snapped her up and swallowed her whole. She didn't even get a chance to scream. So, I said, I guess it's my turn. The black dog lowered its head and stared into me with its bright crimson eyes. I closed my eyes and waited, wondering if being eaten would hurt as much as being burned alive in my dreams. I waited for a long time. I could feel my ankle starting to itch under my emerald school socks. Hurry up, I said. Let's get this over with. Nothing happened. I opened my eyes, and the black dog had disappeared. This is a list of things that have, at one point in my life, frightened me. Daleks. Big snakes. Celine Dion. Public speaking. That scene in Indiana Jones where they open the Ark of the Covenant and the ghosts come out. Nuclear bombs. Really small snakes. The kind that can creep in through your window and wriggle up your nose and sting you in your brain. None of these things frightened me more than the black dog. No one bothered asking questions after Susanna disappeared. Her parents didn't call. Her friends didn't miss her. I wasn't even questioned by the police. That gave me chills for weeks after it happened. I stopped listening to Led Zeppelin after Susanna. It didn't seem fair to listen to them without her. I did keep her Black Sabbath CDs, though. I listened to Paranoid every night just before I went to sleep. I got another girlfriend when I was 17. She was nice, but she thought I was weird, and I thought she was safe. She didn't care about my obsession with fence lines. The black dog waited eight months before it ate her. When I was 19, I moved out of home. I was a uni student, 
kind of. So I moved in with a bunch of people who actually went to the classes I was ignoring. We had a unit on the waterfront in Southport, across the river from a theme park and the spit of land that separated Southport from the ocean. In the afternoons, the water would turn a golden orange, like a slice of ripe mango wedged between a pair of sandy shores. Our unit was on the fourth floor. The road behind us was a highway, lots of road noise and moving cars. The unit block didn't have any fences. It barely managed to lay claim to a yard. Our windows looked over the main road. It cost an extra twenty bucks a week to look over the water. I figured there was nowhere for the black dog to hide. I'd be safe, physically, even if it could still creep into my dreams. The first night after we moved in, I stayed up late, drinking and waiting for the traffic noise to die down on the street below. I went to bed at midnight and looked out the window. The black dog was hiding in the metal bus shelter on the opposite side of the road. It crouched over, trying to make itself look small. I leant my forehead against the glass and stared at it. Yo, black dog, I said. I can see you. The shaggy head rose up and glared at me. The red eyes were narrow and glowing. Southport wasn't a good place to live when I was 19. It was an old suburb in a tourist town, one of those places that had had its day 60 or 70 years before. It was full of patched-up holiday units and summer shacks that were no longer rented to holidaymakers. The hospital on the edge of the suburb had shut down its rehab facilities and psychiatric wing a year before I moved there. We kept a blackboard in our flat that tallied how often we had a run-in with one of the random crazies or the junkies eager to offload their methadone for some quick cash. Every week the person with the fewest close encounters was responsible for buying the Friday night beers. Victoria won more often than not. She was beautiful enough to be worth approaching, even if you were crazy or strung out. I lost a lot, but that was okay. I kinda liked buying beer for Victoria. This is what the black dog looks like. It's big, and it's black, and it looks like a dog. The black dog is never big the same way. The black dog has always been content to remain six inches taller than I am, growing as I grew. It took years before it was taller than my mother. The black dog is black the way the night sky is black, a different shade every evening depending on the position of the moon and the stars. And it only looks like a dog because it seems unfair to call it a wolf. It still holds on to its doggishness despite its sleek frame and lupine jaws. This is what Victoria looked like. She wore black dresses and had hair dyed redder than henna and her eyes were impossibly green as long as she remembered to wear her contacts. Her boots frequently came over her knees, black leather and shiny, the heels sharpened to a dangerous point. I was twenty before Victoria and I got together. I had a thing for long courtships by then. The black dog had eaten another two or three girlfriends since it had snapped up Susanna. Victoria studied philosophy and stripped to pay the rent. She was beautiful and consciously sexy and sounded smarter than me when she talked. She smelt of clove cigarettes and patchouli oil. She tasted like aniseed and ashtrays. She liked to talk about the world's greatest minds, and, when she'd been drinking, she focused on the extensive catalogue of ways they'd killed themselves. Sometimes Victoria would take me shopping when she went looking for underwear she could take to work. I'd spend an hour standing in a store, shuffling from foot to foot, trying to pretend I was reading on the road while Victoria disappeared into a changing room. My job was to offer a guy's opinion. I didn't get to see her wearing the outfits, I just got to see them on the hanger and make comments based on the amount of lace and frills. I spent hours imagining what they'd look like with Victoria inside them. I tried not to think about the stripping. Victoria had a streak of self-destruction. I liked that. Self-destruction seems inevitable when you're twenty. I had a feeling that the black dog approved. This is how Victoria and I started going out. We were sitting in the kitchen just at sunset the window looking out on the crush of the Tuesday night rush hour. 
Victoria smoked cigarettes, and I drank instant coffee, and the sun turned her hair the colour of a cigarette ember. What's that? Victoria said, and she pointed with a cigarette. It's a bus, I said. Not the bus, she said, behind the shelter, the black thing. I looked. Occasionally you'd see crazy folks peeing behind the bus shelter. This time there was nothing there but the black dog. Must be shadows, I said. Victoria frowned. She had a great frown. Her pale skin wrinkled like concerned silk. You're telling me you don't see a wolf, she said. A big fucking wolf. I blinked. Sure, I said. But you're not supposed to. The black dog's my thing. What the hell? How can a big fucking wolf in the middle of the suburbs be your thing? I changed the subject, and Victoria changed it back. So I told her. Mirawinnie, the Gold Coast, Susanna being eaten in years of bad dreams. I hadn't told anyone the whole story before. It felt weird. Victoria gave me a strange look when I was finished. Shit, she said. You're fucked up. I guess. But you can see it too. Too much acid, Victoria said. Then she added, You know, I always thought you were a little too straight to be interesting. I shrugged. I'd gotten used to the black dog being around. It didn't seem like a big deal. Then Victoria leaned over and kissed me. I was about a kisser by then, even when caught by surprise. It wasn't bad, as first kisses go. It should have led towards better things. In the end, we didn't have sex. We just made out and slept together, side by side in her bed, still wearing our clothes. Eventually, Victoria got up and went to work. Keep the bed warm, she said. I'll be home in the morning if you're willing to stay up. It was strange, watching her get ready, heading for the door after the taxi driver started leaning on his horn downstairs. She didn't get to wear her favourite dresses to work, but they insisted she wear the shoes. I lay back and tried to imagine her naked. Soon there would be other guys watching her, and then going home, and doing the same thing. I wondered whether that should freak me out more than it did. Victoria's ceiling was covered with glow-in-the-dark stars, tiny constellations of luminescent shapes. Her bookshelves were filled with Sartre, Camus, and Plath. If I'd known better, I would have realised that none of these were a good sign. The black dog sniggered outside. I tried to ignore it and go to sleep. I was still awake at 2am. The black dog was still sniggering. It sounded snide, like it knew things I didn't. The black dog didn't normally laugh that much. Most of the time it was pretty quiet, a little bit creepy but easy to ignore if you'd had enough practice. I checked the clock twenty minutes later. The black dog had sniggered for nearly four hours. I lay in bed and thought about how sick I was of hearing the sound. I got up around 3am and went down to the bus shelter. I took half a pack of Victoria's cigarettes, a zippo, and the fire extinguisher from the stairwell of the unit block. The black dog was still laughing. It didn't notice me coming across the road. I sat in the bus shelter and waited. I could hear the black dog's lungs working on the other side of the aluminum sheeting, the heavy thump of its flanks as it breathed in and out. I wrapped a knuckle against the aluminium. Yo, black dog, I said. What's up? The black dog's laughter cut off, replaced by the soft pad of paws. It circled round the bus shelter, black smoke trailing from its mouth, the cold bead of its nose sniffing its way towards me. The black dog's head lowered, drawing level with my own. I pulled the pin on the fire extinguisher and pointed it towards the black dog's mouth. Gave it a quick spray to make sure it worked, spitting white foam at the black dog's face. The black dog eyed me carefully, and then it sat down, great haunches squeezed onto the narrow strip of curb, its long tail dangling in the gutter. Hey man, it said. 
Let's not get crazy. You're the one with the crazy laugh, Sparky. I was just trying to get some sleep. The black dog growled, but it kept its voice soft. It barely even raised its lip to show me its teeth. I stabbed a cigarette into the corner of my mouth and started rummaging through my pockets for the lighter. Finally, I just looked up at the black dog and pointed. You want to help? The black dog exhaled and a burning ember bloomed at the cigarette's tip. Thanks, I said. The black dog inhaled a strong whiff of the cigarette smoke and then pulled a face. They smell bad, he said. It sneezed twice, then settled back onto the ground, its red eyes narrowing as it watched me. I smoked the cigarette and stared back. So, black dog, I said, why aren't you off eating Vicky tonight? A big red tongue rolled out of the black dog's mouth. She's not my type, it said. Not yet. I'm not big on fast food. The prepackaged stuff is never as filling as home-cooked, you know? I nodded like I did, but I didn't. I hadn't eaten home cooking for months. You, I said, are one fucked up dog. The black dog snorted. I could taste the ashes in its breath. Look who's talking, it said. You should get going, kid. Your girl will be back soon. It stood up, shaking itself off as if it had been covered in water. Flecks of hot spittle dripped out of its mouth, creating black pits in the concrete sidewalk. It's been nice chatting, kid, it said. We should have done it earlier. Then the black dog slunk back behind the bus shelter, settling its bulk against the side with a solid thump. A few seconds later, it was snoring. Victoria came home around 6am. She smelt of cold sweat, cigarette smoke, and the hunger of other men. I pretended I was asleep as she crawled into bed. I went and bought a portable fire extinguisher the day after I talked to the black dog. The extinguisher was small and compact, lightweight enough to fit in the bottom of my pack. The guy who sold it to me said they were designed to fit in the glove box of the car. Victoria would spend her free evenings by the window in her bedroom, watching the looming shape of the black dog where it lingered behind the bus stop. She would write notes, smoke cigarettes, and sigh. What does it do? she said. It just sits there, day after day. It watches, I said. It waits, and it plans its attack. I was dreaming of the black dog every night. Victoria was added as a new feature. The black dog would eat her before it breathed on me, reducing me to a familiar pile of bones and ash. I found the regularity of this exchange comforting. It reminded me that the black dog was still there, still doing the things it used to do, even if it wasn't eating my girlfriend this time. I wasn't a particularly good boyfriend yet, even with some practice under my belt. I was a better kisser, sure, and I wasn't as nervous as I'd been with Susanna. I knew how to have fun by then. Sometimes we'd have so much fun that Victoria would laugh. Victoria wasn't big on laughing. Laughter was a sign of weakness and stupidity. She had perfected the art of the deadpan expression specifically so she could avoid actively laughing when she delivered jokes. Her laugh was nervous and hesitant, like a frightened rabbit sitting at the threshold of a warren. I made Victoria laugh, but it was a rare event. Most of the time we got by on awkward passion and the knowledge that the black dog was watching us. I clung to Victoria despite the black pit that had settled into my stomach. Victoria hung with me because the black dog was there, and that was enough to make me interesting. In the end, the black dog didn't eat Victoria. I think she was disappointed. She took the decision out of the black dog's hands while I was down at the pub. One of our flatmates found her in the bathtub and called the ambulance. They pulled her out and put her on a drip and stitched up the bits that needed stitching. They took her away, and Victoria spent three weeks in the hospital. We'd been going out for six months. We still hadn't gotten around to having sex. 
Victoria became a lesbian after she left the hospital. We broke up not long after that. I just couldn't compete with the allure of women, not even with the black dog's help. I got kicked out of our Southport apartment because Victoria's new girlfriend didn't like having me there. My flatmates took a vote to see which of us would stay. They wanted Victoria gone after the suicide attempt, but her name was on the lease and mine wasn't. They figured a little more melodrama was a small price to pay in exchange for not messing around with the RTA and finding the spare cash to cover my share of the bond. I moved back to my parents' house. I was taller than both of them by now. The black dog moved with me. It seemed happy to have a fence to hide behind again, even if I was tall enough to peer over the top when I stood on tippy-toes. My stuff didn't fit into my parents' place anymore. I found the pictures of Donald Duck that filled the wall of my bedroom annoying. I still liked the reading light, though. It made my room feel like home. One night, a couple of weeks after I'd come home, I ducked out back for a cigarette. My parents were inside. I could hear one of them washing up, the other taking a shower in their ensuite bathroom. I knocked on the back fence and held my cigarette up for a light. The black dog wheezed, produced a tiny ember of flame. Hey, black dog, I said. Hey, kid, the black dog said. He sounded happy. I smoked. The black dog's heavy breathing rumbled on the other side of the fence. It seemed like it was waiting for something. I said, listen, stay out of the neighbor's pool, huh? They've been complaining about fur in the filter. The black dog gave a low growl, a sound that was almost friendly. When I looked up, it was peering over the fence, its forepaws resting against the wood. I'm moving, I said. This place feels too small now. I'm thinking of heading towards Brisbane, seeing what I can find there. The black dog didn't say anything. It just heaved big breaths, huffing and puffing, snuffling air through its smoke-filled nose. I finished my cigarette, stubbed it against the weathered fence. Hey, black dog, I said. Could you eat her for me, Vicky? No, the black dog said. What about me? Is it my turn yet? No, the black dog said. But it's coming, right? How fat do I have to be before I'm considered a tasty treat? The black dog shook his head. I reached up and scratched his even muscle. So, Brisbane, I said. You coming? I have room in the truck. I'll think about it, the black dog said. You planning on getting a place with a fence line? And again, yes, there are lies here for the sake of convenience. It's a flaw of biography, the assumption of an ending and a satisfying conclusion. The end is always false, an attempt at poignancy that real life rarely provides. This is not how it ends, not really but it's the way it ends here. I moved to Brisbane when I was 21, not long after my birthday. I found a unit block that didn't have a fence line. The black dog didn't travel in the truck, but it made it here anyway. It spends its day lurking in the car park of my unit block, hiding behind the dumpster that holds our communal garbage. The black dog complains about the smell a lot. I keep telling it to find somewhere better to hide. There are cars down there, another bus stop if it gets really desperate. It never moves. It just whines and snarls every time I drop off garbage. Sometimes I'll invite it into the apartment, offer it a few hours away from the garbage stench and exposure. Sometimes the black dog accepts my offer, and we spend the evening reading the works of the great Russian novelists. The black dog likes Dostoevsky. It has a penchant for notes from the underground. I like Anna Karenina, but I read the black dog's favourite to keep the peace. It can still breathe fire when it wants to, and all the books are flammable. Some days it seems like we're stuck with each other, just me and the black dog forever. Sometimes it just feels like we're waiting, but I'm not sure what for. I haven't had a girlfriend in a while now, but I'm not sure I'm ready to start again. The black dog tells me 
it doesn't mind so much. On the cool nights, you can hear its stomach rumbling, a soft gurgle on the breeze. The number of science fiction novels penned by Australians and published each year is vanishingly small, particularly when compared to the bookshelf meters of fantasy and paranormal romance appearing in the same period. But it's not all bad news for SF. The genre is infinitely flexible, and most recently it's been cropping up in mainstream publishing lists under the guise of action-adventure, what you might call contemporary military SF. One of the best proponents of this subgenre is relative newcomer Greg Beck, who's Beneath the Dark Ice we reviewed in TISF number 15. Dark Ice contained quite a few nice SF tropes, and in Beck's latest, Return of the Prophet, the SF element is amped up even more. As demonstrated in Dark Ice, Beck has a strong grasp of the action genre. His work is exciting, fast-paced and cinematic in feel. He's also good at appropriating from the real world and extrapolating into the very near future. So, Prophet takes Beck's protagonist, super-soldier Alex Hunter, codenamed the Arcadian, into a rogue Iranian state where an Islamic extremist prime minister is funding outlawed nuclear experimentation and twists that together with the widely reported and recent fears that CERN's Large Hadron Collider may create black holes capable of swallowing the Earth. The Iranians in Return of the Prophet stumble on more than nuclear fission. They manage to create an event that opens a channel through to another dimension, a doorway that allows things that shouldn't exist to come to our world and a means for an already fanatical Prime Minister to hasten the end of the world as foretold in the Koran. Alex Hunter and his crack team of Hawk Special Forces, armed with the type of advanced military materiel that would make James Bond's Q green with envy, are dispatched to take out the threat. The action is beautifully choreographed, and the characters are well-rounded, in particular Alex Hunter himself. Hunter's powers are still growing in ways that not even his own commanding officer is entirely comfortable with, and this adds an extra element of complexity to an already engaging character. Beck continues to provide strong female characters in this second Alex Hunter outing with Mossad Captain Adira, who's more than a match for Hunter's hawks. And he's not bad at monsters either. The descriptions of the thing that emerges from that other dimension are particularly effective, creating visual and auditory images of the creature that will stay with me for a long time. Return of the Prophet is a lot of fun, and clearly there's more work for Hunter to do. That is, if his enemies, or his own side, don't kill him first. He's been under the Antarctic ice, and in the Iranian desert. My bet is next outing he'll be in outer space. Perhaps the International Space Station is under attack. But whatever it is, I'll be alongside him for the ride. Four stars. Return of the Prophet by Greg Beck is published in Australia by Pan Macmillan. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au 
for links to the featured author's websites and for details of the publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2010. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it.